like I thought, like, because we're talking about awake and love, and today we're talking about like leading up to getting married and all that stuff. And today's sermon is PG 13, so just let you know. But so here's just some throwback jams from the early wine days. Check that guy out. That's circa 2001. That soul patch was on point, right? Here's me, all my guys throwing me up in the air. Here's another one from our wedding day. Oh, look at that beauty right there, Julie, back when. She's younger now, because I won't tell you how old she is, but she still looks like that today. So there's we are. I'm so excited I have a ring on. That was neat. Still have the same ring on today. Look at that. See, I mean, right there, my dad's there, Pastor Tim. Look at the little candles all starry, right? It's so romantic, exciting, like moving to that wedding day and everything that leads up to it, right? But the reality is, 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 is it's not really the easiest thing in the world to necessarily get to that day like the way you want it to work out, Right? And in our culture today, we've, we've got this concept of like, when does commitment come in and when does intimacy come into the equation, right? And, and when do you awaken love and when do you not awaken love? And what, is, what, what does that look like? And we're going to dive in today and figure it out. In Song of Psalms, we're in chapter 3. And I'm going to try to stay with the text a little bit. It gets a little weird. If you haven't read the whole book, read the whole book, Right? And uh, if you think that God's view on sexuality and stuff is lame and boring and that he doesn't think it's awesome, just read this book. But you'll be like, I think God thinks this is pretty awesome because he does, because he made it up, right? But it's powerful and it needs a place and a time. And that's what we get into a little bit here. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 1. All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but I did not find him. Context, she's dreaming this. Okay, and, 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 and some of the verbiage in that first sentence could be that she dreamt about it often, right? So she loves this man, and she longs to find him, to, to be in this relationship, right? Just, I will get up now and go about the city throughout the streets and squares, and I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves, and I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Jesus, as we, um, as we dive into the word today, I just pray that you would speak to us, that we would hear this truth wrapped in grace, and that it would, um, it would move us to freedom and to love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's taking place in these first five verses? This young lover is excited about her fiancé, basically, here, right? And is searching for him and longs for him. And there's understanding that the desire for someone else is great and wonderful. But the question is, is, is any time a good time to awaken love, right? Is any time the right time? Because we come back to it in verse five, it ends with, with the same warning, right? Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Why the warning again? Because love and intimacy and romantic and sexual desire are very, very powerful forces in our lives and they have a time in a place our culture today 
says any time and any place is the right time. And I don't think it's working out real well for our world. See, in chapter 8 of Song of Solomon here, it talks about the power of love. In chapter 8, verses 6 or 7, it says, For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Love and attraction Arousal are powerful, wonderful, God-given things. They have a proper place and a proper time, and that's why we're warned again. Our culture, though, says, listen, anytime's the right time. In fact, this concept that you should put commitment and marriage before intimacy is so old school. It's so outdated. It's so lame. It's so religious. It's so prudish. Like, you're going to try to stay a virgin until you get married? Like, how old school are you? Well, let's see how, how well the new school thoughts and, and, and perspectives are working for us as a, as a world right? One of my friends who works in South Africa, helping understand and educate people there on AIDS and sexual purity, and, and uh, he's a fight trying to find sex trafficking and a lot of terrible things over there. He said to me a couple years ago, and this, I never thought about this uh, like broad scope. He said, you realize if you could snap your fingers and every single human being would begin living by a biblical structure of sexuality Every, like the amount of sexual pain and dysfunction would immediately be eradicated across the world. Like if everybody in the world was immediately was like, we only live by a biblical standard of intimacy and sexuality, like sex trafficking, which is a horrid, gut-wrenching reality. Guess what? It no longer exists, right? Rape doesn't exist. Like Teenage pregnancy and unwed, like th- these things stop existing. Sexually transmitted diseases don't exist. Like all these things that when you see the effect they have on us as a human being culture, rip your heart out. Pornography no longer exists. All of these sexual dysfunctions and the pain that come from them immediately are eradicated if we live by a biblical standard in sexuality. But when we view it, we go, oh man, that is lame and old school. Or if we don't live by it, what the devil does is comes in and heaps so much shame on us that God is so mad at you because you've made mistakes. When the whole time, God is not mad. He is an amazing, loving, heavenly father. And he is slow to anger, quick to forgive. And what he knows is that it breaks his heart when his children are broken. And so as he has given us biblical wisdom to say, here's the deal. Let me give you wisdom in the realm of commitment and intimacy so that you have the opportunity to live the best life possible. If you don't, I'm not mad. I'm just grieved because I want your best because I love you best. So any time is not the right time for love. 
And I think if we can get this next point, we may begin to understand timing for intimacy and commitment in our life. And it's this. I think one of our issues is we have lost the value of knowing our value. Do you know the value of knowing your value? And I'm grateful to say today, when Julie and I got married that day on August 4th, 2001, we had saved ourselves for each other in marriage. Great thing. So excited I could say that. But I remember about a year before we started dating, I was hanging out with a friend of Julie's. And uh, this is awkward because I, when I speak, I try to really overdo the vulnerability because I want you guys to know that like I'm a real person and grace is real. But what I'm going to share with you today, I told Julie, hey, don't come to church today and don't bring Cole because he's my 12-year-old, because I haven't yet had this conversation with Cole, and I didn't want Cole to be like, well, interesting, Dad, from the stage, because that would be negative. But then as I was getting coffee between services, my mom and dad are here, and I realized I've also not had this conversation with them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they're over in this section, so I'm going to preach to you guys and you guys for the next, like, three and a half minutes. No. So the deal is this, is I'm sitting in, the, in, in this car with this girl named Lexa, and uh, I'm trying to kind of sweet talk her, right? Because uh, in my high school and college years, um, I, didn't, uh, I, I didn't have sex with, with people, but I, would, I thought it was cool if you could kiss as many girls as possible. You're like, Darren, you're a pastor, and I'm a human being, right? And it's called grace, and I walk with this relationship with Jesus, but I, I, I did, and... Um, so I'm trying to kind of sweet talk Alexa. And she stops and she says, and, and this question wrecked me. She said, Darren, she says, you know what makes me sad is I don't understand why you don't value yourself as much as I do and as much as God does. And in that moment, I, I didn't have a good answer as to why I didn't value myself and why I didn't value her. And, and I wish I could go back to like 12, 13, 14-year-old Darren and, and, and sit down and help me understand what does it mean to value a girl? That she's a bazillion times more valuable than your ability to persuade and sweet talk her so you can make out. And you are, as a man, intrinsically 10 billion times more powerful than and more valuable than if you can make out with someone, if you can hook up, right? Like that so drops your God-given design made in the image of God value to the absolute floor. And I'm so glad that as I started dating my wife, like I tried the same smooth talking lines on her and she was having None of it. None of it. And I was like, okay, that didn't work. Now watch this line. I'm going to try this. And none of it, right? Because I'd found a woman that understood her value. And there would be no progression in our connection, in our relationship, in our intimacy until I understood and valued her the way God valued her. And part of that was getting intimacy and, and commitment in the right order. If you're here today and you say, I don't know that I know my value, 
or you say, there's some, been some things in my life, Darren, that has taught me that I am not valuable, or at least I don't think I am. Please, let me, let me like, this is one of my greatest fears in the sermon, that, that, that I would say truth today and you would hear it through a filter of shame. But see, here's the deal. I told the truth about myself first because what I want you to know is this. Like, there is no shame. There's just grace. Like, we have where we are right now. And, and, and the reality is, is God has loved us there and he's going to love us there. Is, is we're in this moment going, if I haven't understood my value, I can now step into the truth of who God's created me to be from this moment. Receive that in grace. I don't have to be shamed or feel bad or, or like I'm bad because of this. I realize that I don't want that anymore, but there's a new way I could live, and that is grace, and that is momentum, and that's what I want to invite us in today, right? This woman, she understood that because as we get into this, right, she says, I held him and would not let him go until he brought him to my mother's house. There could be some control issues there. Hard to say. We're not going to dive in. That's for another sermon, all right? But she finds this man, and she's like, I'm not letting you go. We're going to mom's house. And you're like, why in the world would you go to mom's house? Well, in this culture, what, what many scholars believe is what this is telling us is their relationship was, had been pure to where she could go back and, and, and get mom's blessing for the fact that they had honored each other with, it, with intimacy and sexuality to that point. So she's going back to mama's house saying our relationship has been pure and this is where we're going to plan the wedding, right? So we're going to go back to mama's house. We're going to plan this wedding. We're going to get this thing right because the rest of chapter three is basically this procession where the, the, her, her lover comes in. There's a chariot and some weird language, like imagery of leather in there. It's, it's a, I don't know. It's great poetry. But so we're leading up to the wedding. So they're going back to mama's house to get mom's blessing because the relationship has been pure and they're going to plan this wedding. Here's a question for you today. Are you currently dating someone that you would be fine, comfortable Bring it back to mama's house. Are you currently dating someone right now that is honoring you and valuing you in a way where they want to bring you back to mama's house? Are you currently in a relationship with someone who knows the value of knowing your value. See, we have to be careful with our hearts. And this is something my dad taught me. I remember he would put scriptures on my bedroom wall, like little cards above my light switches, and I would read them and memorize them. I remember one of the ones he put up was Proverbs 4, 23. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Here's the thing that's scary about our hearts and why I think the word of God says to guard it is if you ever had a situation where your heart got stolen because you weren't guarding it well, like you, you let someone too close to you before you knew it, they had your heart. You fell in love with them and then you realize, man, I, this is a really tough thing to figure out because there's some things that are inconsistent with my values and their values, but I didn't guard my heart well. And now the reality is, is when my heart is taken or stolen or given or unprotected, that determines the course of my life. If you're in a place right now where you're not in a long-term committed relationship, I want to encourage you to hear the word of God to guard your heart and make sure 
The only people that get access to your heart are people that know the value of knowing your God-given value and are set on protecting that and taking you back to mama's house to make it right. If you're not, you're in a dangerous place right now and you and your significant other are going to have an awkward conversation this afternoon. And that's a good thing, right? See, see, th- th- there's so much about the value of this. Later in Song of Solomon chapter eight, right? It describes the protection that, that should be brought to young people in this situation. It says this, <clears throat> starting uh, in verse eight of, of, of eight. We have a little sister too young to have breasts. What will we do for our sister if someone asks to marry her? If she's a virgin, like a wall, we will protect her with a silver tower. I love this image, right? Of this young woman and someone is trying to basically, what if somebody comes and tries to steal her heart? What if she's young and doesn't know her value? Well, like a wall, we will defend and protect her value and who she is. And I get a little concerned, guys. Let me talk to us that are raising the next generation of, of people. Last year, my, my son, he's 12 now, my oldest son, he was 11 last year, and uh, he had a girlfriend for a few months. And their relationship was awesome. Basically, it consisted of her texting him, hey, what are you doing? And then him not responding for three or four days. <laughs> Eventually, she dumped him because he never responded to her text messages. Big surprise. But I'm beginning to rethink my view on dating. And I get concerned because I keep talking to peers of mine who have kids that are preteen, right? And it's almost like we're excited about them getting a boyfriend or girlfriend and dating. And we're going to set them up for dates and take them to the mall and leave them and let them hang out. And like we're playing a house or something with preteens. And in the Bible, right, you might get married at 15 or 16, probably did. So if you aroused and awakened love at 15 and got married at 16, yeah, you might, you might be, you know. But in our culture, if we're awakening and arousing love in our preteens at like 13 and 14, and they're probably not getting married till 26 to 28, there's a lot of space for them to have to maneuver the immense power of desire and sexual attraction and temptation in their life. And if I get, you know, looked down on because I tried to keep my boys from really arousing and awakening love in their life until they were a little bit older, I'll go ahead and be lame and out of touch. Because for me, I want to build a wall around them, not in fear, but to have them have a safe place where they know that they're valued and they know their value and they understand the value of women. So if right now you're trying to run like a bachelor, bachelorette thing for your teen, you might want to just stop for a minute and think about what's happening in your home. Do not arouse or awaken love before it's time because it's powerful. And guess what? It's really great. All the married men in the house say amen, right? It's great. And you read this, and I don't, when I read Song of Solomon, I don't see a religious, prudish, negative view towards this. I see two people that understand the value of each other and of intimacy and commitment, and it's awesome. And praise God it's there, right? But we have to understand it in the realm of timing and structure. 
Because here's the deal. When intimacy precedes commitment, intimacy is perverted. When intimacy precedes commitment, intimacy is perverted. Okay? Now, this is maybe sounds kind of, you know, maybe it's childish, maybe you heard this before, but intimacy actually means this, into me see. When you get into an intimate relationship, what you're saying is you are with someone who sees you, not just sees you physically, but they see into you for who you are. They understand your value and your treasure and your wants and your desires and your dreams. And God created us as human beings to be seen. Right? In his book, Soul Craving, Erwin McManus says this, sex can be the most intimate and beautiful expression of love. But we are only lying to ourselves when we act as if sex is proof of love. Too many men demand sex as proof of love, and too many women have given sex in hopes of love. We live in a world of users where we abuse each other to dole the pain of aloneness. We all long for intimacy and physical contact can appear as intimacy, at least for a moment. As you read through the Song of Solomon, you see two young lovers that see each other. The descriptions and the, and the, and the flowery poetry and stuff is so beautiful. It's two people that really see each other. Here's a question I have for you. Do you see the people in your life? A friend of mine, Matt, asked me, he was talking about this the other week. He said, uh, he said I read somewhere that, that you really have come to a place of intimacy in your marriage if you can order a salad for your spouse with them not there and get all the right toppings on it. And you say, well, we're talking about salad now, Darren? We're doing this, right? But it struck me. That if I see my wife, then I'm going to see what she puts on salad. And when she's not there, I should be able to be like, oh, I got this, babe. And put together the greatest salad she's ever seen. When she comes back, it's like, you know me. You see me, right? <laughs> For some of us, we may be trying to figure out, like, what's wrong with the intimacy in my relationship? And it may be that you can't get Saturday night right because you can't get Saturday lunch right. Because you don't see your spouse. Men, women, are we, are we seeing into the soul and the heart, the dreams, the fears? Are we creating an environment of conversation and of intimacy and of sharing and of grace and of love and of listening where we, we can say, I am in a place where I can be seen and loved? We're going to talk about the last week of this series that for a woman, the greatest fear of a woman is to be invisible. Because God has created you to be seen and to invite others to enjoy your beauty and nourish and, and, and develop relational strength and harmony. That's what God created feminine people for, women. And if you are invisible, you are unable to do the actual reason God put you on earth. We're going to talk about the last week of this series. Intimacy is so much more than just physical. It's about a seeing each other. But if we get it out of context and intimacy precedes commitment, we do not create a culture of honor and protection where we can be vulnerable enough to be seen. You say, well, Darren, maybe so, but you know, I mean, you got a test drive sometimes before you buy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, I don't know what you're saying. 
But you've heard that, right? Maybe you've said it, right? I'm not gonna be getting a long, long-term committed relationship if I don't know that we're compatible physically. Well, let's take the illustration of test driving all the way. Here's the deal. If I go to test drive a Honda today, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go to the Honda dealership and there's a car owned by Honda. They're going to dispatch a representative of ownership of the Honda. I'm going to give them a license and registration. They're going to keep copy of that. Then the owner of the vehicle, said owner, right? They're going to ride with me in the car. We're going to drive around the block once to see how I like the inside of this vehicle. And then I'm going to get out of the car and give them the keys back because I don't own it. If I would like to commit to own this vehicle, I can then drive it by myself home and put it in my garage. That's a test drive, all right? Some of us aren't test driving a relationship. We're committing grand theft auto, okay? We're saying, you know what? I don't know I want to commit to you, but I'll take you home. I'll park you in my garage. And if it works out, eventually, I'll buy. Right now, in our culture, we have more value for cars than we do for human hearts. Say, Darren, I really wish you weren't preaching this because my girlfriend and I are living together right now. Well, I think you're going to have an uncomfortable conversation this afternoon. And not in a shameful, oh, I'm being mean, religious kind of way. It's in God has created a structure that will give you the best possible opportunity to live the best life possible where love and intimacy actually are providentially moved forward and provided for. You say, Darren, but man, I didn't hear about this anywhere. It just made sense for this and no one taught me and I didn't know and I was listening to a lot of Ariana Grande and she seems like she values herself a lot and I just didn't. No shame. We're stepping into this moment full of grace and truth and saying, Jesus, what does it look like to follow you and love the way that you love, right? Because when commitment precedes intimacy, intimacy is providentially protected and promoted. Let me read you this quote. Because what I want us to get our minds around is when we put commitment and intimacy in the right order, we create a culture of honor in our relationships. Julie and I dated for... Uh, not even a year, and uh, and I decided, you know what, this is it. This is the woman. I want to marry this woman. We flew out to Arizona. My parents lived out there at that point, and we went on this tour to all like the spaces I grew up to show her everything. And shoot, I only got three minutes. Let me tell you an embarrassing story. So we go out to dinner with my parents, and like I'm so nervous. I got the ring and everything, got the whole thing planned out, and we go out for uh, Italian. Uh, but I get this seafood medley with like shrimp and scallops and a bunch of stuff in a bed of uh, pasta. And I'm nervous as they come because I'm like, I'm about to ask this woman to marry me. And before we leave the restaurant, you never get like a text message from your intestines that are like, you're about to die. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was like, it was all caps, all caps locked with. So, so. <laughs> We get back to my parents' house, and I mean, remember the scene from Dumb and Dumber? You know what I mean? (laughs) And I'm thinking it's going to be this romantic moment, you know what I mean? And I'm trying to, so I come out of the bathroom, but like, no one come back in this entire area, this house. 
So burn the house down, right? So I try to compose myself and get back into this, like the romantic, you know, mind frame. Let's go, honey, you know. So I take her all over. We went to all these places. And then we end up on the 18th tee box of the Phantom Horse Golf Course in South Mountain. And the, and the 18th tee box overlooks the entire Valley of the Sun, right? And I found this quote on commitment. And I, I, I'm like, I had her looking out this way. And I got down on my knee. And I was like, I read this. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitively commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision. Raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meanings and material assistance which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Gothi's couplets. What, <clears throat> whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Concerning all acts of initiative, there's just one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that the moment one commits oneself, then providence moves to. Julie turns around, I got the ring. She says, yes. Could it be that you've looked in the rearview mirror of your life and you've seen some failed relationships and you're saying, what do I keep getting wrong? Could it be that you've flip-flopped intimacy and commitment and you're missing the providential guidance and help of God in the relationships that you're living in? It's at least possible, right? Does it mean if you get all this right, guarantees a perfect marriage? Absolutely not. There'll still be days you want to kill your spouse because you're trying to learn to love another human being, which is probably the most difficult thing to do on the face of the planet. That being the case, what God has said is, I'm gonna give you guys some biblical wisdom that if you apply to your life, will give you the best possible chance to live the best possible life. So, do you know your value this morning? If not, find some people here at Mercy Road that seem like they know their value and spend time with them to let them mentor and disciple you to understand your value. Have you forgotten the value of knowing your value? Well, listen, like I said earlier, there's no shame in this. Shame is from the devil, it's not from the Lord. Conviction is from Jesus, which you say, this thing is wrong and could change. You don't say, I am bad and terrible, right? It's this could change. This action could change where I could begin living a life that is consistent with who I am and who God's created me to be. Maybe you're in a relationship right now. You say, wow, Dan, this got really awkward. Today could be an opportunity for you to, to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? I didn't know about this value thing. I didn't know about the stuff the Bible teaches, but I, I, I want to honor that because whoever you're dating right now or whoever you're committed to be married to, say, you know what? 
if I've not valued you the way that God values you, I, I want to learn to do that. And this could be a beautiful, beautiful day of change. If you're raising the next generation of people making these decisions, we got to think about this, don't we, folks? Right? Or if you're at a place right now where you're in between relationships or in that place in your life, find some people that will help you understand your value and make decisions accordingly. Because love and commitment and intimacy are wonderful and you've been created for them, but they have a time and they have a place. Jesus, I just pray as we sing some songs right now, as we have some time in your Holy Spirit, if there's somebody here that says, man, I, I, I need to really talk and pray with somebody, I pray that you'd give them the courage and the humility to meet us in the prayer room, to pray, to talk, to work this out. Father, I come against a, uh, a spirit of shame right now in the name of Jesus Christ and pray that grace and truth would fill this room and that shame would have no place on us as a people today. Restore us, invite us in. Teach us our value. In Jesus' name, amen.